we have a special treat at Kalos Church today. We have a guest speaker, Pastor Jacob Taylor from Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri, is speaking to us today, continuing our Esther series with chapter seven. I'm so excited. I, I've been friends with Pastor Jacob for over 15 years, and we've gotten to know him as a couple, just love him and his family. And he actually serves on our board of directors at Kalos yeah. Church and has served our community. And we just wanted to make sure that our communities were connected. Obviously, we would love to have him here in person, yeah. but with the quarantine, this digital possibility is now available to us. And so we just want to encourage you to lean in, to tune in, really pick up not just his words, but his spirit. He yeah. loves Jesus. Yeah. He has ministered to us personally as friends and also fellow pastors. And I, I just believe he's going to make a huge difference for us. So Pastor Jacob, we love you so much. Yes. We're so honored that you're with us. Thank you so much for speaking today. So everybody, let's give him a huge round of applause. Kalos Church, it is so good to be with you this morning. And I love that we live in a world where I can be here in the heart of America, literally in the Midwest, surrounded by cornfields and coming to you this morning, speaking to you there in Bellevue and beyond. I'm the family pastor at Word of Life Church here in St. Joseph, Missouri, where I am lucky enough to do ministry with my co-partner, co-conspirator in Christ-like crime and spouse, Megan Taylor. She's an amazing human being, and I'm lucky that I get to do life with her. And we also have a young one, a little three-year-old beautiful girl named Eden who, by the way, has a favorite song, which Pastor Pradeepan mentioned last week, Waymaker. And I know that Pastor Pradeepan led us in worship in that in last week's sermon, but I wanted to one-up him and give you a quick clip of my daughter Eden leading this song for you guys, because I know it means a lot to us during this time. Check this out. Isn't that awesome? I remember being in college with Pradeepan. We went to university together and I have a lot of stories, a lot of things that we did together that honestly are totally not appropriate for me to share here on this platform. But I do remember one thing that used to happen periodically in the evenings, Pradeepan and I with a group of guys would go downstairs to the bottom floor of our dorm building and there would be a small chapel there in EMR, which was the dorm building on our university campus we lived in. And it was probably big enough to hold like 12 people. I don't know if they built it for like the 12 disciples kind of thing, but it was tiny, this little tiny chapel that was like the size of a broom closet. And we would have an acoustic guitar and like sing songs of worship together. And we would pray bold prayers about God using our lives to bring about the kingdom of heaven here on the earth. And I am so glad that Pradeepan met Amritha because together I believe that God is answering those prayers in and through their lives. Amen and amen. And I am so proud of Kalos Church. We have been following your journey from here in Missouri, and it has been an awesome journey to watch. So a huge applause to the Kalos community for making known the beauty of Jesus there in Bellevue and beyond it's awesome. Amen. Well, we're going to dive in and continue our series this morning on the book of Esther. But before we do, would you pray with me? Let's pray. 
O God, you have made of one blood all the peoples of the earth and sent your blessed Son to preach peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. Grant that your people everywhere may seek after you and find you. Bring the nations into your fold. Pour out your Spirit upon all flesh and hasten the coming of your kingdom. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen and amen. Well, we're in the book of Esther again this morning, and if you're new with us, you're just like stumbled into this, then let me do a quick recap for you. And if you've been along for the whole ride, you've been through the whole book of Esther so far, then this will be a good recap for you. So the story of Esther goes like this. It's about a Jewish community who is residing in the city of Susa, this capital city of the Persian Empire. And there's four main characters in the story. We have Esther, the namesake of the book, who becomes the queen. We have King Xerxes, and we have Mordecai, Esther's uncle. Esther and Mordecai are Jews. And we have the king's right-hand man, Haman. Now, through a series of events, Esther becomes queen. And she's Jewish, but she's secretly Jewish, so the king doesn't know it. Now, her uncle Mordecai actually runs into Haman, who has been promoted to the right hand of the king. He's the most powerful man in all of the empire except for the king. And Mordecai will not bow to Haman, and this just ticks Haman off. Have you ever had a friend, I had a friend like this, who overreacts to everything? I had a friend growing up named Steve, who if you just were like, hey Steve, what's up? And you, and you punched him in the arm, just like a, a, a friendly greeting between two teenage guys. Steve was the guy that would always lose his temper just out of a tap and be like, hey man, good to see you, and just wail on your arm till you couldn't use it and it was bruised for three days. If you've had a friend that overreacts or maybe a sibling or a spouse, oh, okay, <laughs> who just seems to overreact, right? It's like there's been times when I asked my wife, how do I look in this? And she goes, oh, it's fine. And I'm like, fine, fine. I mean, I'm, I start freaking out, right? This is fine. Is it okay? Like I start self-doubting and I overreact and then it turns into a two-hour conversation about my own self-esteem and I overreact. Haman does this same thing, right? He overreacts and he convinces the king to decree a day to annihilate the whole Jewish community in the city of Susa. That because of Mordecai won't bow to him, now all the Jews are going to die. So Esther and Mordecai, they come together and they come up with a plan to reverse this decree. Esther plots a plan to have a couple banquets. And as we learned last week in the first banquet, Esther then uh, convinces the king to hold a second banquet, and in between the two, the king has trouble sleeping. Now, the king, as he's having trouble sleeping, has the chronicles read to him, the stories of the kingdom, and he's reminded this night that Mordecai actually saved his life. He had forgotten. And so he awakes the next morning, and little do we know, at the same time that the king is having trouble sleeping, Haman is on his way home drunk from the banquet, runs into Mordecai, and they have another altercation, and now Haman is explosive again, and Haman decides that he's going to set up gallows at his house to hang Mordecai from. So he comes up with a plan to actually execute Mordecai at his own home. The king is having trouble sleeping, being reminded that Mordecai saved his life. Do you see a grand reversal about to take place? And the next morning, Haman comes to the king to request permission to execute Mordecai. And the king says, Haman, this guy Mordecai, I totally forgot he saved my life. And a big shift happens. The king 
commands uh, that Mordecai be honored by Haman publicly throughout the kingdom. Now, on the same day, Esther throws the second feast. And so, after all this drama, we pick up the story in chapter 7. Esther, at the feast, impresses the king so much. He's, He's feeling so good about the queen's family, being reminded that Mordecai saved his life, that he says to the queen, What do you want? Any request up to half of my kingdom, I'll grant it to you. So there at the feast with Haman and Mordecai sitting at the table, Esther reveals that she's also a Jew and that she would like her request of the king is that he reverse his decree to kill both her and her family and all of her people. The king gets enraged in a fit of anger and says, whose idea was it to to annihilate the Jews in the first place. I can't believe that this is happening because I love you, my queen, and I love Mordecai, and you're both Jewish. Why would I want to annihilate the Jews? Who set me up for this? And little does he know, as Esther's about to reveal, that it's the man sitting at the table with him, his right-hand man, Haman. Esther tells him, well, it's Haman, and we pick up the story. Esther chapter 7, verse 7. The king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the queen. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where he was drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the words left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hung Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Whoa! Talk about drama. I'm telling you, I know some of y'all got drama going on in your life. I mean, I've been working (laughs) in ministry for years. I've seen some drama. I've had some drama in my own life. Like I always say, if you take my family tree, like here's a family tree and you turn it upside down, my family tree more looks like the root system, right? It's complicated. It's messy. (laughs) There is no making sense of it. Drama, drama, drama. And let me tell you that Esther, the book of Esther is full of drama. Chapter seven, specifically when I, when I got a call from the Jeevas, And they said, we want you to teach on Esther chapter 7. I thought, why me? (laughs) Esther chapter 7, it's just a book of like violent drama. The king is angry and Haman is hung on his own gallows that he had intended for Mordecai. A great reversal happens. And I thought maybe I could preach you, you, uh, you reap what you sow, right? Jesus says, Uh, In the manner that you give, it'll be given unto you. In the manner that you judge, it will be judged unto you. But honestly, as I sit with this story in this chapter, the whole story, in the midst of this drama, the question that plagues this preacher is this question. How in the world, in all of this, do we find God? How do we find God in this? And that's going to be the question that echoes from the story of Mordecai and Xerxes, and Haman, and Esther, 
all the way throughout the ages to us today in the year 2020 in every area of our life, I believe right now the question many of us are asking, how do I find God in all of this? My hope this morning is that we can do some work to answer that question, which is also the title for this morning's message, How Do We Find God? Maybe you look around at the world right now and you see a pandemic and racial injustice and the division of our country, or maybe right now you're experiencing a personal tragedy or entering some of your darkest days you feel like in your life. And you're asking that same question, where is God in all of this? First, I want to assure you, I want to speak this to you. These words, you are not alone. You are not alone in an isolated place of doubt right now. You are not alone in your struggle in this space with pain and suffering. You're not alone in asking this question. I know that the church has been a place at times for some of us where we've experienced shame and when we've wrestled with doubt and questions of God in the midst of a struggle. But I want to tell you that that is not, that's not the beauty of Christ, which Kalos is all about. That's not where we're going this morning. And secondly, I want to tell you that I will not seek to give you a cheap answer, a trite answer to this important question for many of you who are in the struggle of your lifetime. I make that commitment to you. Finding where God is in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, it reveals one of the most profound truths about who God is, the character of God. Finding where God is in the midst of struggle reveals a profound truth about who God is. And this question, where is God, is most famously answered by a young man in my life by the name of Elie Wiesel. Now, I don't know Elie Wiesel personally. He's a beautiful human being, but I've sat with his book, Night. And I will tell you this, it's a heavy book. It's a book where he recounts his story of being a Jew in the midst of an empire where the empire was seeking to annihilate all of the Jews. You know this as the Holocaust. And he was in a concentration camp and he recounts the horror story of living through that time. And can I just make a side note? (laughs) Don't read this book in your local Starbucks like I did. It's really kind of an awkward situation where you're reading this emotionally heavy book recounting the story of a young man as a Jew in the Holocaust while trying to sip a lavender latte in public. It doesn't work out too well. I think I embarrassed myself many times. But there's a particular story in the book Night by Elie Wiesel, which stands out to me for us this morning. A young Jewish boy who had stolen an extra serving of bread for the day, I think, to feed his dying father. And he was caught by the soldiers there and made an example of in front of the whole camp. They actually hung this young boy on the gallows in the middle of the camp, and they made all of the Jews in the encampment march by those gallows and look at that boy as an example that you don't mess with the empire, right? With, with the regime. And Ali recounts the story as, as he was in line, staring at this young boy hanging from the gallows. He heard an old man behind him, a voice saying, 
under his breath, but loud enough for Ellie to catch it. Where is God? Where is God? Where is God? And Ellie says that not out loud, but in his own heart and mind, he answered that man's question. His response was, God is there hanging on those gallows. God is there hanging on those gallows. For Ellie, he tells that that was the moment that God was dead for him. That in the midst of his pain and his suffering, where is God? God is dead. God is useless to me. Now Ellie will later in life come back to faith in God, but in that moment he had lost his faith in God because where was God to be found in the midst of all of this? But yet, may I propose that Elie Wiesel in that moment answered the question, where is God, correctly. Because in that moment, with that young boy on those gallows, in fact, God was there in Jesus, hanging from the gallows of the cross. Whatever it means for humans to experience suffering, God in Jesus has experienced. Whatever it means for humans to experience pain, injustice, sorrow, God has fully experienced in the life of Jesus. And as Jesus hangs on the cross, the gallows of the cross, he stands in solidarity with every victim of injustice, every victim of rejection, every victim of abandonment, every person who weeps, every person who suffers, every pain and illness, Jesus is there in the midst of it. In fact, the prophet Isaiah spoke about the coming Christ like this. In Isaiah 53, he prophesied that the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, would be a man who was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one whom men hid their faces, he was despised and he was esteemed not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's who Jesus is the one who bears our griefs, takes upon himself the iniquity of us all, and he carries our sorrows there on that cross. In the place of pain and in the space of suffering, the season of sorrow, that question echoes for us, where do we find God? We find God right there in the middle in the middle of the suffering, bearing the pain too, crying those tears too, gasping for breath too. The God who created the universe, who commits himself to save and redeem and restore his good creation, doesn't do so from a place aloof or distant or way out there. God is not way out there. In fact, the God who loves his creation, who sees his good creation broken by sin, comes and enters creation, Emmanuel, God with us. God comes as one of us 
as a human, to know the full experience of humanity, to know joy, to know laughter, to know celebration, but also to be acquainted with grief. And in a mystery, this has something to do with how God saves the world, that God in Christ would put upon himself the human experience and in solidarity with us, suffer on the cross. So I want to say to you that he knows your pain. He knows your sorrow. He knows your grief. He knows your injustice. He knows what you're going through. And you are not alone. If I could say anything to you this morning, it would be this, that you are not alone. Now, I also want to say to you that the cross is not the end of the Jesus story. And your suffering is not the end of your story. Amen. I want to say that again. The cross is not the end of the Jesus story, and your suffering is not the end of your story. Your pain is not the end of your story. Your diagnosis is not the end of your story. This injustice is not the end of the story because Easter Sunday is coming. Come on, somebody. Sunday is on the way. And that's why we gather on Sundays. We're here in this space this morning because Jesus is alive. He has conquered sin, death, and the grave. That he didn't stay on the cross, he was buried in a grave. He went all the way down into the place of death and came out through it on the other side with the keys to, the, to death, Hades, and the grave. And he says this, I am the one who was dead but is now alive. And he is reigning on the throne victorious. And he is going to see you through this season. Let justice roll down like a river. Justice is coming. Healing is coming. Redemption is coming. Restoration is coming. Because Sunday is on the way. Every Sunday is a mini Easter where we are reminded that Jesus is our Savior who both suffered with us, but will bring us through that suffering into victory. He will bring us through that pain into healing. He will bring us through injustice into a place of justice where all is made right. That is the good news, the gospel of our kingdom. Amen and amen. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 11 says that this saying is trustworthy for if we have died with Christ, we will also live with him. Come on, Sunday is on the way. Ephesians 4.10 says, He who descended, who came down, speaking of Jesus, is the one who also ascended, who is on the throne, that he might fill all things with himself. That he might fill all things so that the psalmist can write, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, if I make my bed in the place of the dead, you are there. And this is why Jesus says in Matthew 28, those famous words to his followers, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You are not alone. Sunday is on the way. Amen. Well, I know this not just as a truth found in Scripture, but because of my own personal story. I was a young man who oh, had the world. It was like... I was living a dream. I, I loved my life. And then 
My life fell apart. My family shattered into pieces. My mom became overwhelmed with substance abuse and eventually found herself in homelessness. And my dad trying to hold it together and pay bills and his own struggles in that time with depression and whatever he meant, tried to do, he just couldn't make ends meet. I don't know if you've ever been in that place. Maybe you're there now. But as a young man in that situation, as a young man trying to make his way, I was kind of groping through the broken pieces, trying to find my way, trying to take care of my siblings. And in the midst of all of this, I would cry myself to sleep every night. I don't know if you've been in a place of brokenness where you've cried so much, you've got no tears left. I came to the end of my rope. I had nothing left to give. And I just, in my bed one night, I remember it as clear as it was right in this moment, as if we were living it now. I remember crying out and saying, God, I can't do it anymore. I can't do it anymore. I'm done. I wonder if you're there. Maybe even now you've tuned in and for some reason you found yourself here and you're in a place where you're going, I'm done. I just can't do it anymore. In that moment, I heard these words ring true. I felt like on that cold night that these words came to me in a tangible way that felt like a warm blanket of love that engulfed me. I felt the love of God so strong in this moment. And I heard these words, I will not leave you or forsake you. Though your mother, your father may fail you, I will take care of you. I realized that these were words from Psalm 27 Verse 9 and 10, the psalmist says, God, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me. O God of my salvation, when my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. And I want to say this, that in my story, from that moment on, there was a confidence that was born inside of me that reminded me each and every day that I was not alone, that Jesus was speaking to me saying, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, that I will carry you through, that I'm standing with you, beside you, that I'll uphold you in your weakness. I'll be your strength. When you fall down, I'll pick you up. I'll carry you on. I will not leave you or forsake you. And he did a work, a true work of love and faithfulness in my life. And he took my broken pieces and began to put them back together again and restored my relationship with my own mother that I had felt abandoned by. And he put the pieces back together for my father. And, and he actually used my story to reach young people year after year after year. And that now I'm called to a place of ministry where he's using my broken pieces and my brokenness and pain to bring healing for others. Jesus carried me through. My suffering, my sorrow, my pain wasn't the end of my story because Sunday was on the way. Resurrection was around the corner. Jesus was going to bring restoration and salvation into my story. And I believe this with all my heart this morning. This, the thing that you're facing, is not the end of your story. That Jesus is standing with you and for you that He will carry you through. He knows your pain, your suffering, your situation intimately. And Sunday is on the way. Salvation is right around the corner. Hope is just about to spring forward. Justice is about to roll down. I believe this. Hold on to it. You are not alone. 
You are not alone. I want to close with this scripture, this passage from Romans 8. So famous. Why don't you maybe in this moment close your eyes and receive this word? The apostle writes in Romans 8, 38 and 39, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen.